0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. What makes a good mother? An engaged mother? A mother who is selfless, who puts her children's welfare before her own? Or perhaps sacrifices her desires, needs, even her autonomy to put her child first. Such are the fraught questions put to Frida Leo, the narrator of Jasmine Chan's riveting debut novel, The School for Good Mothers. Frida has been charged with endangering her daughter Harriet after she leaves her alone at their apartment to calm herself after days without sleep. The resulting horror of losing her child to the state, to Child Protective Services, and then to her ex-husband's new partner, who would replace her as Harriet's mother, leads Frida to the School for Good Mothers, a state-run institution designed to train those deemed unfit to be capable parents. The training that will follow breaks down the women who live at the school, physically and psychologically, and Frieda must decide whether to endure the increasingly cruel system of tests or face losing Harriet forever. The School for Good Mothers terrifyingly captures the impossible demands placed on those who would raise children, while asking powerful questions about the sexism and racism that drives all such attempts to narrowly define who can be a mother. This beautifully crafted look into the near future feels all too close to our present. Let's jump straight away into my interview with the wonderful Jasmine Chan. Welcome back to Burned by Books. We have your daughter, and thus begins the harrowing story of Frida Leo's attempt to win back custody of her daughter, Hillary, after having been found to be a bad mother by a dystopian nanny state that looks frighteningly similar to our own present. Jasmine Chan's remarkable and remarkably frightening debut novel, The School for Good Mothers, begins with a simple premise— Good mothering and maternal instincts can be taught through a series of painful lessons about one's personal failings and in an environment of constant surveillance and extreme deprivation. The school at the heart of the book is where Frida is sent after having been deemed incapable of caring for her daughter. She is a solidly middle-class divorcee graduate school educated and working for UPenn in Philadelphia, and she is no match for a system of legal discipline of mothers that exists in Jasmine's near future world. She is sent away to the school ostensibly to learn how to care for her child, but the institution's view of motherhood is absolutist and perhaps unattainable. Motherhood in this world is fundamentally about the abjection of the self, the suppressing of the needs and desires of the woman for the supposed benefit of the child. The training for motherhood that happens with increasingly high stakes and psychological precarity at the school teaches Frida and her fellow classmates, perhaps better called inmates, that any distraction from the child, even a second's thought to oneself, is narcissistic child endangerment. Personal time, physical and emotional intimacy with another adult, or even emotions perceived as outside of the incredibly constricted range set as appropriate by the instructors is considered damaging to the child, and is therefore must be surveilled and recorded as further evidence of a failure to become a mother worthy of having a child. In Jasmine Chan's utterly captivating first novel, the question of who is an acceptable mother becomes the foundation of a society built around the surveillance and discipline of its citizens' moral choices. While certainly dystopian, the school for good mothers has been met with extraordinary acclaim for the ways in which the novel takes on our own political ideologies that wish to shape society around one limited vision of what and who motherhood can look like. The gripping plot and terrifying conceit are matched with a deep well of empathy for Frida and the women of every background who find themselves at the mercy of an institution that never saw them as capable to begin with. This is a book that sees with great moral clarity into the systematic dehumanization of those we call mothers. Jasmine's short stories have appeared in Tin House and Epoch a former reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. She holds an MFA from Columbia and a BA from Brown University. Welcome to the show, Jasmine Chan.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show, Chris, and for that completely fantastic introduction.
0: Well, I'm thrilled you're here. I loved this book, although loved is a funny word for when you read in terror and can't put it down. Um, But I'm very interested in how you came up with the conceit for the book, A Near Future in Which Motherhood is a Strictly Disciplined Set of State-Sanctioned Behaviors."
1: You know, in giving interviews about the book, it's been interesting to try to put a narrative on a process that was pretty intuitive all along and full of trial and error. So in attempting to um, try to explain it as a linear series of events, um, I'll tell you that I started the book in early 2014, so in a pretty different political reality, and I was heading into my late thirties and thinking a lot about the question of motherhood and feeling a lot of pressure to choose a path to decide whether or not to have a baby. So I was, I was really dealing with a lot of anxiety on a day-to-day basis about that big life choice. And I'd taken all my vacation days from PW to go to a friend's house upstate and, because I'd, I'd gotten rejected from McDowell and Yotto for like the 10th time. <laughs> and so I, I went to a friend's house and just created a little residency of my own with my vacation days and being snowed in there in the country. And I was coming up with one terrible short story idea after another until I had one really good writing day. So so Frida's very bad day grew out of my, my really fruitful day of scribbling at my notebook and one thing that that fed the book, besides my own ambivalence and anxiety about motherhood, was reading the Rachel Aviv article in The New Yorker in late 2013, which is titled Where is Your Mother? Which is about a single mom who left her toddler son at home. And after that, they never got him back. Mm. So that really is about her, her Kafka-esque. A completely horrific experience with um, the family court system and losing her child to a, a foster family. So that that's much more of a, a, a story of, about foster care. And I, I think I made the decision early on to to tell a different story, which was about the the breakdown of a, a marriage and losing your child to another woman. But those are the two big wells of inspiration for where the conceit of the book came from. The the idea that that parenting can be something as private as parenting can be taught and that there's a universal set of rules that that parents may or may not live up to.
0: I feel like it's such, first of all, that's such an interesting Genesis story, uh, and that reveals a, a lot. It's pretty well understood by historians, anyway, that when we encounter these periods of time in which a society starts to believe that there is one uniform way that you can teach parenting, that you're entering into a kind of fascist moment in that society, since fascist ideologies almost universal have one vision of the family do you feel like our society is is kind of rubbing up against that that moment where we're having to decide whether that's what we're going to tip into and that the way in which we treat in particular mothers and mothering may be a signal of that
1: well i i definitely think a lot of Aspects of American society and culture have become truly terrifying, especially since 2016. But the the whole phenomenon of child protective services um, and the government interfering with family life has been going on for decades. And it, it happens all around us. I think it's just that only the most extreme cases make the front page news. So the, the phenomenon of, of the government taking a a parent's child or children away is is something that's been going on for a very long time. Mm.
0: Frida's so-called grave mistake, the one that separates her from her daughter Harriet, is that she leaves Harriet alone to go to her office for various reasons. And the context is that Harriet hasn't been sleeping at all because of a prolonged ear infection and Frida is emotionally and physically exhausted neighbors hear harriet crying and call the police when frida arrives at the school she learns that many mothers have committed similar offenses with one extreme example being a mother who allowed her child to walk to the local library alone you seem to be playing with the idea of state-sanctioned helicopter parenting why did you want to represent this idea of the modern quote-unquote engaged parent at an ideological extreme
1: I think part of my interest in in satirizing some aspects of helicopter parenting is because I growing up in the 80s and early 90s was just it felt like such a different reality. I mean, I, That's walked so to true. Sc- <laughs> I walked to school from a very early age. I rode my bike alone from a very early age. I played in the yard by myself. Um, I certainly, I, with some of my friends who are uh, also in their early 40s, we ta- we've we talked about how we would sit in the car for 45 minutes by ourselves in the parking lot while our parents went shopping. And the, the whole phenomenon of kids sitting in a car waiting for their parent to finish whatever they were doing um, that would totally get you arrested these mm. days, and so I think the fact that I'm at an age where I I grew up in a, a, a different under a different set of rules uh, affected my my view of things. Also, the fact that I I came to parenting later, I had my daughter when I was 38, and so I'd had some time to see my friends make the transition to parenthood and the kind of pressures they were under. Um, it's it's hard to avoid the messaging of. American society and culture about how involved you need to be with your children and how closely you need to watch them. There's this message that your kids are always in danger, and it's it's hard to shake that off. Even though I I wrote a book partly inspired by this, it's it's hard to shake off that messaging. So I was I was interested in. Um, representing an extreme sort of to draw attention to the, the impossible standards that we've created for parents and also as a as a way to critique this this whole phenomenon.
0: It is impossible to avoid the messaging. And I know from personal experience, having lived for a little bit in Spain and and kind of experienced what my own parenting looked like in comparison to the Spanish parents who were very much more like the 80s parenting that I experienced and to feel like on one hand, oh, this is this seems better. And then on the other hand, thinking, oh, boy, they're awfully irresponsible with letting their children, you know, run willy nilly and that kind of like deep ideological burying of these things is, I mean, it's, it is very inescapable.
1: You know, this is reminding me that my I'm reading the Ramona Quimby books to my daughter now because she's she's five, and so I mean she ha- can't read them by herself yet. But we we read Ramona together now, and it's a very beautiful experience because these were my favorite books as a child. But I have to explain that yes, Ramona is six and she's walking to school alone, mm. but kids don't really do that anymore. <laughs> so it's so and, sad, <laughs> and, and I I feel like we watched Totoro or uh as, A movie that was made a while ago and the kids are running around at night alone and I have to explain, yeah, we don't really do that. This is just in the movies or this is just in a book written 40 years ago.
0: Yeah, whereas there are lots and lots of places where children are happy and safe and they have that kind of that kind of freedom. So the dystopia of women having their children removed from their care is a reality for many who run afoul of child protective services and the layers of judicial punishment that exist for so-called mothers. This lived dystopia is quantitatively worse for mothers and fathers who are racial minorities and who are statistically much more likely to have their children taken away from them by the state. Why did you want to dramatize this real horror as a near future dystopia?
1: Well, the the really good writing day I was um, telling you about um, at the beginning was it. It was really the only time in my life where an idea has come to me fully formed. So it's hard to to take apart all the threads and say where like the reason for making it a, a near future setting because it was always a near future setting from the moment that I conceived this story. So. I envisioned the school once I was a little further into the project as a way to talk about the real-life horror of having our children removed from by the government, as well as to talk about our larger parenting culture. So my my hope is that the speculative elements in the book will draw attention to the real tragedy. Um, it's a way to to gesture toward the real horror while also acknowledging, um, certainly my limitations in, in representing that real horror and also the fact that a character like Frida wouldn't necessarily even be affected by a, a real case like this because in, in real life, she wouldn't necessarily be surveilled in the same way. She'd have the resources to get a really good lawyer and get her child back pretty fast. I also didn't necessarily feel like I could access that experience through straight realism, and I didn't want to claim that I was speaking for for all parents who experienced this tragedy. So that's uh, that. Those were were some of the things going through my mind when when deciding to to pursue this this crazy idea to to its uh, furthest potential.
0: That's really nicely said. There've been a lot of comparisons between your novel and The Handmaid's Tale. And certainly there are strong echoes of the aunts and the instructors at the school and the fascistic limitation of familial roles, amongst other apt comparisons that have been made. But you bring a stronger dose of 1984 and even Black Mirror and the society of surveillance to your dystopia. Mothering in this society is something that is watched and studied the moment that Frida is suspected of being a bad mother, cameras are installed in every corner of her home. Once at the school, she is constantly monitored. In some ways, it feels like we're perhaps already there in terms of this ubiquity of surveillance. But I'm wondering how you perceive our current surveillance society and how you think your novel is in conversation with that present predicament. <laughs>
1: Well, first, I love being asked about surveillance. So thank you for that. Um, the, the Handmaid's Tale comparisons are beyond my wildest dreams. I should mention that a novel that was probably more of a touchstone for me is Never Let Me Go by Kazuma Shiguro. Ah, my
0: favorite because, novel.
1: <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. It's, it's one of my favorites, too. And I, I think what I love about the book is that it's so eerie and it creates this this mood that stays with you over time, like even if I can't exactly tell you the whole storyline from start to finish from memory, I can tell you a lot about the feeling I have um, from reading that book. And I, I loved his, I loved the more minimalist world building that he does. So there's only one or two things that are are slightly different from the world um, that we live in. So I, I will say, first of all, that surveillance is probably discussed in my household more than most. My husband and I talk about it all the time. And Mm. a lot of it is in relation to my phone use and whether or not I share family photos on Instagram or Facebook. And my my husband's a very private person. And so I questions of privacy, um, have certainly come up as I've, he, he's not on social media at all, but questions of privacy and our family's privacy have s- certainly come up a lot. Um, as I've started to use social media in the last 10 years. So I, privacy and surveillance are things that I, I think about a lot. I think, uh, the present predicament is, is very frightening. Um, in a lot of ways, I, I will say that also uh, this was a suggestion from my friend, the the award-winning poet, Keith S Wilson, who helped me really build what the dolls could do in the, in the book. And he's, he suggested, oh, they could record all of these aspects of the mom's behavior. And that's actually what our phones already do. Mm -hmm. So, so when I am using my phone way too much as we all do, I'm, I'm aware that I'm giving my data to major corporations, and that everything I say is is just going somewhere. I, I don't, I don't know where it's all being stored or how it's being used, but we are giving our information all the time. So it's, it's something that I, I think about on a regular basis, and that I, I just took to a, a wild extreme in the book. So uh, it's building on the idea that so parents who do lose custody of their children and do start to have uh, supervised visits that are supervised by Schultz workers that is also a form of surveillance. So it's taking some of that surveillance that happens in a much more low tech way in our, in our life and adding cameras and data and high tech machines to it. But but parents who are in trouble with the government, they are already under a form of surveillance.
0: Hmm. Yes. The self-surveillance that we seem every day to agree to in ways uh, transparent and and otherwise. So I'm Completely thrilled that you revealed this influence of uh, Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, both because it's my favorite novel, but also because I had this sense that there was a, a deep commonality between the two. In particular, this idea that the teaching that goes on at Hailsham for the students in Never Let Me Go is about sacrifice, and it is about a sacrifice of an essential piece of them to a so-called greater societal good. And in that case, it's their organs, which they will sacrifice until they have died. But I see a a similar kind of education to sacrifice with the mothers in in the school that you have created and sacrificing an essential part of themselves. This form of motherhood is this self-abjection, and it is about... Saying that if you have a desire, you are a narcissistic, bad mother, and that you've expressed your own self to the detriment of the child. And that felt like very much a part of our current conversations about, and perhaps very long conversations about, how motherhood is supposed to work. And I wonder what you were thinking in in terms of imagining that long history of how we've developed this sense of of sacrifice of the self.
1: Well, I, I think that aspect of American mothering culture has always really bothered me. The idea that once you're a mom, you, you have to let go of every other desire or dream that you have in life. And it's one that definitely made the decision to, to be a parent very fraught for me because I, I decided to have a baby, even though my book wasn't done. I didn't have a writing career to speak of that much. And I had to just go for it in terms of having a baby at that particular time and, and hope that the the book would get finished and get published. But the the idea that once you're a mom, that identity comes first just feels so oppressive. And it just feels like another way to, to keep women from ever um, being full equals in society, that you're you're not allowed to to ever think about yourself or your own needs. And, and that it's all supposed to be glorious and happy every moment of the day just just feels like uh, such a limiting conception of Of how to live a life
0: that's for sure one context within which i read the school for good mothers and specifically frida's imprisonment and punishment in the school is within the long history of anti-asian hate in the united states which has found its way into the public consciousness again after several years of particularly heinous crimes against americans of asian and pacific islander descent Frida is the child of Chinese immigrants, and one rationale that is given to her for her punishment is that her parents were cold to her, echoing a cruel stereotype. Was this context at all part of your creative impulse for the novel?
1: Well, I I definitely began the book at a a slightly different time. So anti-Asian hate has always been here, and I certainly grew up with a lot of bullying and just casual racism like i i grew up in a politically progressive seemingly integrated suburb and i was definitely harassed by adults when as a child when i when i oh my goodness try to explain it to people now like it was yes it was the 80s and yes i was in a a very progressive well-educated community where white adults harassed a small chinese child just like on the street, like that's that's mm. crazy, and so no one can believe it when I tell them that. But I, but that was just part of my daily life. I I didn't um, spend a huge amount of time thinking about it because that was just part of my my everyday experience, and there was no one really to talk to about it because there were no other Asian families. But one thing that I was thinking of as the the creative impulse for this book was uh, in the Rachel Aviv piece. Um, that's about uh, a mom who is an immigrant, who is an Arabic speaker, who is is held to not just uh, an impossible set of standards as a mother, but the, it felt like the government was expecting her to be an American mother and to express affection in a certain way and to perform Western expectations of parenting. And that, to me, just I, I think that that's part of what planted the kernel of rage in my mind after reading that piece was that it felt so unfair and it felt that sh- it would, that they were expecting her to erase her culture and heritage. And and part of the, the tragedy in that story was that her son, who was adopted by a white family, had to completely let go of his family's culture because oh. that, that was part of the loss. And so I represented that in the book via Frida's story and the question of whether or not um, Harriet was going to have any ties to her, her Chinese side if if she wasn't going to be reunited with Frida,
0: that's a particularly upsetting part of the out of the novel. Um, there's been a lot of conversation recently about how surveillance can work as a benefit uh, in the sense that acts of hate caught on surveillance and acts of police violence and brutality, but also uh, just stranger or acquaintance violence that are captured and on cameras allow for people that have less voice because of the way we treat racial minorities in the legal system have a different kind of voice. And I wonder if you've been thinking at all now that we're in this sort of different era that we could even call the George Floyd era. Did it give you pause about thinking about surveillance as some of the ways in which it can be this necessity?
1: I have to admit, I haven't watched any of the videos um, myself. I I know that all the videos exist of police brutality and of the attacks on Asian Americans. I haven't been able to watch uh, just because I know that I'll be so upset. I'll won't be able to actually like do anything else, and those are the videos are very hard to avoid if mm-hmm. you engage with the internet at all. Um, I know that there was the case last spring where a woman was was beaten in in midtown, and I think the doorman shut the door on her, and it was playing everywhere, and it was it was very hard to to say like I'm not like I need to set some limits for myself. I I can't uh, watch this because the I'll, I'll I was already um, feeling so afraid to even leave the house at that point. But I, I think that both surveillance and policing in America are deeply problematic and policing is a, a really broken system. And I, I think that there is the larger question of how additional policing and additional surveillance affects different communities of color. and. I, I don't know that additional surveillance has made anyone safer. I think that it has led to a, d- a different way of uh, building awareness. But cer- certainly it's... So you you had um, sent me the Jane Hugh article from The the Atlantic. And I think what struck me is the different ways that different communities of color view the police. And these days, I think it's important to be aware that calling the police can result in someone dying Mm -hmm. Um, and that, yes, you're... You're calling the police to to rescue you, but it's it's terrifying to think that like yes, the pursuit of your own safety may result in someone else's life. This came up one time when we when we were uh, before you we moved back to Chicago and we were in Philly. Um, there was uh, a situation where where we we had to decide like are we going to call the police because there there has been this this situation that's kind of dangerous and in another era. Maybe we would have called the police to let them know, like, oh, this, like, maybe at this particular park, you should, you should know that this is what's going on. But we decided not to because we didn't want, we didn't, we didn't want to risk those kids' life. Mm. And it feels like that's, that's a reality that that has to be a part of the conversation and i th- i think it is more and more part of the conversation um but it's it's such a big problem that it's hard to hard to address surveillance's necessity and the necessity of policing because it's just uh broken in so many ways
0: well and that is precisely represented in the the relative failure of body cameras to prevent this kind of violence even though we get to see it now and there's a testament and a, a recorded history, it hasn't stopped that kind of police violence and and death from police interactions. In fact, there was a horrible record sent, uh, set at this past year in how many total uh, people died in police interactions. So clearly the surveillance aspect of it isn't tamping down the way that violence and discipline of of people of color's bodies and how they act and and where they move isn't being suppressed by being seen. So the idea that we can still see these things and have a record feels important to me, while at the same time it seems to do nothing to the base problem.
1: But we also live in such a violent society that I feel like we can't remove this conversation from the larger gun culture. it's it, it's truly terrifying to send a child to school in America and when I when my daughter had her first lockdown drill in her preschool I had to I was explaining to my dad like what that was and what that meant and why they had to le- they were legally required to do a lockdown drill with three and four and five year olds um, it I, this is really the only society in the world that that needs to do that and it's it's just. Uh, it's terrifying as a parent to to en- to engage with that now and it's it's crazy that 20 years later that nothing has changed.
0: It is the for me the great horror of child rearing and and when we were living in Spain i asked my son why he he liked spanish school so much and he said i never have to worry that i'm going to get shot oh that's
1: that, so sad that, how old is he
0: he's now in high school but he was in he was in middle school at the time and it broke my heart um and i feel like the the sad thing is that is that there is the perception that we are in total a more violent society, but as you so precisely said, it is a gun problem, because if you look at rates with similar income countries like Germany and and the UK of uh, crimes committed, the rates are very similar, but the deadliness of those crimes so that domestic violence becomes a di- a much deadlier thing in the U.S. than it is in the U.K., even though the rates of uh, of the events of domestic violence are close to the same percentage wise so that it's so clear that the issue is guns.
1: Yeah, it's I think what's what's terrifying um, having grown up um like i was i was in college when when colin bine happened and so it definitely made a huge impression on me as it did on anyone um who's my age but the fact that a lot of us are now adults raising school age children and the laws haven't changed at all and the problem has exponentially gotten worse is just so terrifying
0: yes i agree uh, i want to change trajectory for a second to say that one of the things that i loved and, and thought was such a clever bit of critique is that your school for good mothers is set in a closed down campus of a recently shuttered liberal arts college to my mind it seems like you're signaling a, a changing of the societal guards in the ending of one kind of liberal education and the beginning of of another kind of ideological state monitored education. Why did you give the school this significant setting?
1: Well, first, I love that interpretation. (laughs) Thank thank you so much. Um, I have to admit that it was a much more fanciful detail (laughs) in 2014. um, And it, it reads very differently now that uh, many colleges are are in trouble during the pandemic. So, if so, in twenty fourteen, it felt like a, a much more far fetched dystopian detail. And so, reading it now, it's it's just uh, emerging into a very different world. But I gave the school this setting um, partly because I didn't want it to be a, a prison, mm. and I wanted mm-hmm. it to be a government institution. And one thing that changed as I was working on. On the book with my my brilliant agent Meredith keffel Simonoff, who I cannot say enough good things about. Um, she she suggested very gently that my setting details were a touch random, <laughs> and so <laughs> she so before we we before, before we sent it to agents and before I worked with my brilliant original editor Don Davis, um, she she suggested that I I do some research and add like an actual campus, and so I. With all due respects and apologies, I used the Swarthmore campus as mm. um, as kind of my model for, for what the land might look like. My sister went there for undergrad and found a lot of the details uh, terrifying and hilarious. <laughs> and so <laughs> so I, I visited both Haverford and Swarthmore, but Swarthmore had a bell tower and I needed a bell tower for the mm. story. And I remember when I visited her on campus when she was an undergrad and I'd, I'd been out of school for a few years, I just couldn't believe there were so few students and so much land. And in the original concept of the school, I had them in a, in a much less idyllic setting. It was just an average liberal arts school, not one with so many acres and, and so few buildings. But once I decided to use Swarthmore as a model for the setting, it actually became more ominous to place them the moms in a setting of great beauty, that they were undergoing such horror and isolation in a really beautiful place. And the the idea that the school had so much land actually made the the premise much scarier to to envision how the how big the school could be 10 years on.
0: Hmm. Well, as someone who grew up a stone's throw away from Haverford and Swarthmore, I love that detail and I'm and I'm gonna return to Swarthmore's campus with a with a keen eye. The other oh,
1: sorry sorry, Swarthmore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They'll recover. <laughs> uh, the setting choice that also is so important to this novel is Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I wonder why Philly? Why, when you um, currently live in Chicago, why you were drawn to setting it there?
1: Well, I think the the Philadelphia setting was was partly related to what was going on in my life at the time. So I started the book in early 2014. But at the time when I began writing the book in earnest was after we moved to Philly in, in fall 2014. And I happened to be at a very fortunate time in my life where my husband was beginning grad school I had moved to a new new city and had left my my job at PW and I had set up a bunch of artist residencies so I had just moved to Philly and was learning my way around the city but I finally had time to work on the book but getting to know Philly was very on my mind at the time so it was it was very influenced by where I happened to live but I I I guess I didn't want it to be a story about a Brooklyn mom and to mm. to set it in New York thank you for that, not
0: making it about a Brooklyn mom
1: <laughs> I mean I love Brooklyn moms I could have been a Brooklyn mom but I I just felt like that was a different story and that if I set it in New York it would be so New York specific that that I I decided to to move it elsewhere just because I I feel like New York would have had to be a much bigger character in the story if I had set it there
0: I I'm I like Brooklyn moms too, and I think that for me Philadelphia gets short shrift as a cultural site for representation of life in America, and it's such a rich center for so many different ways of living and being. Um, and so I'm always happy when I see it as a as a central setting.
1: Oh, you have to read Long Bright River, Liz Moore's book. It's it's so good. If you if you haven't read it already. I, I don't know it, no. So
0: the, you have a, a wonderful detail in, about Philadelphia in, in a reference to the fact that Frida doesn't know North Philadelphia well. And this is the area of the city that has for a long time been one of the poorest parts of the city and one of the densest uh, concentrations of African-American life. But you also reference the MOVE disaster which is one of the most notorious acts of state racist terrorism against a domestic entity in the history of the United States. And it is untaught and largely unknown um, by most students of history in the United States. Could you talk about why that detail ended up in here?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think in writing race and class into my book, I wanted to acknowledge that Frida would be someone who's not perfectly aware of everything and has her own racial and socioeconomic blind spots. Certainly for me, I only learned about the move disaster maybe in 2016 or 2017. And I couldn't believe that as a generally well-educated, well-read person, I'd never heard about it. And once I, once I learned the details, I couldn't believe how little I knew about it or that it had never come up. And so I wanted to, to have uh, Frida's racial blind spots um, be, be a source of tension and, and for her to, to see her, her own limitations um, in her, her, her awareness of, of the world.
0: Yeah. And it's, I mean, you're not alone in not having learned about it. I think we can probably say with a lot of confidence that folks living outside of the general Philly area do not get an education about this horrendous and deeply important moment in, uh, the racial life of the country. And it's yet again, a sign of how education about race and racial violence cannot be, uh, evacuated from our curriculums.
1: I actually lived, um, near the move house in, in West Philly. So I I learned a lot more about it after we moved close by, but I, it's, It's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that that very significant detail of the police bombing citizens is is not widely taught.
0: No, and it's also, it's really a perfect little historical uh, anecdote because you it is a, it's a tale of surveillance. The, you know the amount of surveillance that was happening of the, the move house was um, extraordinary. Every detail of their lives was surveilled by police prior to the mayor's decision to drop a bomb on the top of the, the building where they were living. So it has it has lots of wonderful uh, resonances with your book.
1: Um, I mean, tra- tragic resonances too. The the fact that this happened in I think the early 80s, and I mean, it's it's a problem still.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'm spoiling too much. In fact, you already referenced them. The robot children that end up being the point of lessons and care for Frida at the school are really, for me, the most haunting aspect of the the novel. These children, in a sense, are a futuristic version of the baby dolls that we force high school students to carry around for a few weeks to teach them that parenting is is nonstop um, sleepless chaos. And they are a frightening mix of human-like and also part of this system of terrorizing these mothers into believing that they must abject every aspect of themselves for a child's well-being. I'm wondering how they came to have such a big role in the novel.
1: Well, they were actually there from the the very first draft onwards, and I think they partly emerged in response to the fact that in the the new yorker article that i've referenced a few times that article really made me think of science fiction in a way because the way that the the way that everyone representing the government um from family court judges and lawyers and social workers talked about parenting just felt so clinical and it it felt like almost a sci-fi voice that they were using and so I, th- I think technology and science fiction were sort of on my brain at the same time as, as thinking about the larger issue of family separation. You know, one funny story along the way is my my friend Rosalie Moffat, the poet, uh, was telling me about the dolls that were used in her either her junior high or high school called baby think it over and (laughs) and which is i i think i'm getting the name right but i I, apparently
0: greatest name for those it was it was
1: something like baby think it over and you would take it home for the weekend and they would they would pee a lot and they would cry a lot and was supposed to scare everyone into not having sex and she was saying that the the dolls were like a really high tech version of baby think it over but used for a different purpose but i have really fun funny pictures in my phone from many years ago when we would go to the when we went to the the typical hospital parenting class where it's just this pile of rubber dolls <laughs> that you that you use for for learning how to like put a diaper on a baby and everything. So so there's a there's a lot of creepy dolls in the world. <laughs> so I'm I'm definitely drawing on the the larger body of uh creepy dolls in our society. But I I was interested in the the idea that they would have to practice parenting in a way that that could be watched and, and measured. Uh, and in, in real life you would have supervised visits with your own child, not obviously not with a pretend child, but I wanted it to be part of the way that the state punished parents even more in this near future that they would be preventing their, their real children from harm by, by working with machines.
0: And you developed this uh, ingenious conceit of their technology and that they can be set off on unending tantrums to test the absolute limits of a mother's patience.
1: That was me having fun. (laughs) (laughs) I could tell. (laughs) The the total... Terror that you're in when you're when your child is having a tantrum, it does feel like an unending tantrum, even if it lasts for only 10 minutes. Um, certainly uh, when my daughter has had tantrums in public, for instance, or if we need to go somewhere and we're, we're running late. I feel like my life is flashing before my eyes, even if it's a moment that's going to pass. So it was it was a way of uh, tapping tapping into a, a very real feeling
0: that is it's definitely a feeling that i can empathize with uh the you know to get back to ishiguro uh, for a second he famously worried that his novel the buried giant would be taken as quote unquote fantasy rather than something else the subtext being that genres like fantasy and sci-fi are Are less than literary. I think he's behind the times in thinking about genre. And if you look at especially the last 10 years, the way in which the blockade between genre fiction and literary fiction has absolutely dissolved, then I think it's much easier to understand how literary fiction can incorporate these kind of tropes and features of fantasy. But I'm wondering if you thought at all about how you wanted to kind of bridge that whether existent or made-up gap between literary fiction and genre fiction?
1: You know, I, I have to admit here that I don't think about genre at all when I work, and certainly I had some feedback that the book was too commercial or the book was too dark or I, I I think one has to or that I should appropriately acknowledge that it's it's not perfectly a dystopian novel. It's not perfectly a sci-fi novel because I was definitely interested in the the storytelling potential of the dolls rather than how they were made. And this is definitely not a story where it's about the machines revolting against humans. So I, my, my friend Keith, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was saying like, this was one of the only stories involving robots that he'd ever read where the, the robots don't rebel. And it never occurred to me to have them rebel. Cause I'm, I'm not a super well-versed reader in that genre. So, so I think I didn't follow some of the conventions just because I, I tend to read much more obscure stuff. So, One of the readings that I've really loved of the book is um, to read the book as a feminist horror novel. Hmm. And so... So I think it it falls probably a little more neatly into that category than the dystopian or sci-fi categories. I mean, as, as someone who's a total Luddite in real life, I think it's hilarious <laughs> that the Library of Congress has listed this as a sci-fi novel because I uh-huh. like can't even use Google Docs. <laughs> and, um, I signed into Microsoft Teams the other day, and I felt like such a champion for not touching any of the wrong buttons. So I'm, I'm writing about machines from a place of, of very pure curiosity and bewilderment.
0: But I think that's maybe what makes literary genre fiction is a either by way of not having a huge familiarity with the conventions or a willingness to just forego the conventions and say that in this society there are some things that are different and there are some things that are the same. You might call those things futuristic or science fiction-y things, but the story that we want to tell about humans and human interaction is not going to be so distorted or erased by having to involve oneself in the conventions.
1: Well, I I think if I if I can be so bold as to say this, I I hope that that a, a book like mine, which is pretty dark and pretty weird, um, and doesn't. And, and not easy to categorize. I hope it opens the door for other dark, weird, hard,, hard to <laughs> categorize books, especially by authors of color. And so I I feel really lucky that I got to write the weird book that I wanted to write. and I, I was not asked to to really uh, shave off the edges.
0: I'm so glad that you were not. And I'm wondering if you had any of those uh, writers of color writing great dark weird novels at the you know at the tip of your tongue
1: oh i love severance um Mm -hmm. severance by ling ma is is such a brilliant book um i just read uh the novel more than you'll ever know by katie gutierrez which i think is coming out in june from william morrow so that one really uh plays with the the genre of true crime but what was so surprising is it's also a really romantic book and there's a, a a really thrilling love story at the center of it, which is totally not what I expected when I, when I went into it, I think um, I wouldn't describe this as I would describe this as a pretty weird book. It's, it's dark in its own way. I love the novel, little rabbit, which is coming out by Alyssa song Siri day from Bloomsbury. I think it's in may 2022, but that that's, that's a, a really exciting book that, that I think everyone should read. And it's, the, it's the the sexiest book I've ever read, and I've committed that claim to print.
0: Oh my goodness! Well, then we have to read it. And Severance is just one of my favorite books of the last decade. I think it it gets late capitalism better than than almost anything.
1: I really like books that take many disparate elements that should not go together. <laughs> and so I, I think it's just really exciting to be publishing at a time when there are so many um, Asian American authors coming out with with really unusual books that, that I think push, push the whole category of Asian American fiction forward.
0: Do you have anything else that you'd like to recommend for listeners that you've been reading lately?
1: I would love to recommend the debut memoir by Chloe Cooper Jones called *Easy Beauty*, which I think is coming out in April. Um, Chloe is brilliant, and I've I fully just accepted that I will never write or think as well as her. And I've, <laughs> I've told her so that like, I've just accepted that she's smarter than me and more talented in like every way. And it's just nice to admire your friends. <laughs> um, and she's she's someone I met through doing uh, the virtual book tours for Simon and Schuster in the fall. And it's it's very exciting to have a, a new friendship come out of the virtual world. I also just received my copy of Pure Color, the new Sheila Hetty novel. Um, and i i just really love her work and i i love the fact that she's she's in a space where she can seemingly do whatever she wants um and her her books are also really really hard to categorize and it's it's a place of freedom that i don't necessarily think existed for for female writers 30 years ago. She is a genre now. She is a category. Yes, she, is, she is her own category.
0: Well, these are wonderful. Um, I can't wait to read them. And I hope actually that you'll send me the uh, a link to the article that was such an important source material for this, because I think listeners would like to also uh, have a chance to read that if they hadn't. Um, but I will make sure all these are on our website and available for purchase at independent bookstores near you and Jasmine Chan thank you so much for what such a rich conversation about a wonderful novel
1: thank you so much for the opportunity to appear on your show and uh, thanks to everyone who's listening
0: well that's all from me for now My great thanks to the brilliant Jasmine Chan, who is every bit as thoughtful as her novel would have you believe. You'll find links to purchase The School for Good Mothers and all of Jasmine's recommendations at burnedbybooks.com, along with all of our past episodes and recommend books. Please take a quick moment and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and perhaps leave a review to bring new listeners to the show. Next week, I'll be talking with Allegra Hyde about her new novel, *Ilutheria*. Until then, this has been Burned by Books.